My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the preachers. While I get this thing untangled. And the worship team takes a seat. There we go. Uh, My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the preachers here. It's a real privilege to uh, be back together studying God's word. If you have need of a Bible or an outline or a pen, such things can be found just outside the door on the table there. Please help yourself to it. When the first man in human history met his bride-to-be for the first time, what erupted from him was the world's first love poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That poetry erupted from him because he had been acutely lonely before she came on the scene. You see, in all of creation, there was only one thing that God declared was not good. And it was the man's being alone. You see, God invented the whole idea of romantic love. And his word is very clear about how such love works. It begins with the problem of loneliness, which is not a result of sin. It's simply a result of being a created being. It then proceeds when boy meets girl and things really start to feel awkward And the only way to make progress is with poetry, song, and celebration. So as Percy Sledge sang for us in 1966, When a man loves a woman, can't keep his mind on nothing else. You see, love was... Thank you. Love was already awkward and confusing enough even before sin entered the world. But after sin came, good luck trying to figure it out now. Adele sang about this for us a decade ago, and I can't sing like Adele. (laughs) Never mind, I'll find someone like you. I remember you said... Sometimes it lasts in love, but sometimes it hurts instead. Here's the thing. Romantic love was God's idea. It's something he built right into the fabric of the universe he created. And so it's not something we ought to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. And friends, the world is talking about love all the time. They are singing of it, celebrating it, and sometimes even criticizing it. But too often the church, even our church, is silent on the topic. The question for us, and especially for our young people, is not whether the topic of romantic love will be discussed. The question is whether it will be discussed here on God's terms and for his glory. 
In other words, the question is whether we will pay any attention to the one who came up with the idea of love in the first place or whether we will allow the world to have the only voice in the matter. So this week, we take up the second of four brief poetic books in the Old Testament in our series on life, love, and lament. We arrive at the love portion of the series where we work our way through the Song of Solomon. You can find this if you have a church Bible on page 525. It's a short book. It's tucked right in the middle there, so it's hard to find. Page 525. My task this morning is to introduce you to that book of the Bible. And I would like to do so under the following headings. That this book is a song. It is about marital love found in the Bible to give us wisdom. That's on your outline. Now, in full disclosure, these four points are not my own. The details that I give you are my own, but these points themselves come from an Old Testament scholar named Douglas Sean O'Donnell. And I, so I commend them for your consideration this morning. Let me pray for our time in God's Word. Father, please help us to understand and delight in this delightful book of poetry you gave to us. Help us to see and understand love the way you intended it to be and strengthen and prepare us to understand this book as we work through it in the coming weeks. We pray this for your glory that we might know your love for us and rest more deeply in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So the first point I would like to make is that the Song of Solomon is a song. Look at how the book begins. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So the first thing we should see is that this book is a song. It says it right in verse 1. And actually, I would like to make the case first that this is a song... And second, I'd like to make the case that this is the song. Okay, I'll explain what I mean. First, this is a song. This book is made up of poetry. And verse 1 tells us that this poetry comprises a song. The song of songs, which is Solomon. So because it tells us that this is a song, this means, and this is why I get paid the big bucks as a preacher, it was meant to be sung. See how I got there? <clears throat> the bottom line is that this poetry is a celebration. Now, there are other kinds of songs that we could sing. And this song, just like others, is meant to evoke feelings within you. But it's not a dirge. It's not a lament. We'll get to that with our next book. This is a love song. And so the feelings within will not primarily be feelings of sadness, but feelings of delight and anticipation, even though we'll see there's still some tension and disappointment to be found, just like with any poetry about uh, any love poetry. 
But you can sense the celebration right from the start. Look again at verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is how it starts off. Your love is better than wine. Friends, this is not the humdrum request of a dour housewife who has lost her love and feeling. No, she feels passionate. And she wants even further passion. She wants kisses from her lover. And let me tip you off, these kisses are not the peck on the cheek sort of kisses. The poetic vocabulary and syntax makes clear that she wants delicious mouthfuls of kiss from the one whose lovemaking is better than wine. You see, though there is always grace for things like intoxication and substance abuse, we Christians recognize that the Bible generally prohibits such behaviors. But this song would have us know that there is one and only one kind of intoxication which the Bible advises. And actually, this intoxication is outright commanded of us in Proverbs chapter 5, but it's the kind of command that feels, shall we say, less than burdensome at times. This command is that we are to be drunk with the love of our husbands and our wives. So you should know that this book is a song. It's a celebration. But you also need to know that this is the song. In verse 1, the title given for this book is simply, The Song of Songs. Sometimes the book is called The Song of Solomon. That's how the ESV titles it, picking up on the second phrase of that verse, the phrase, which is Solomon's. So we can call it the Song of Solomon, but the book also calls itself the Song of Songs. And in this sermon series, we'll probably alternate regularly between those titles. The phrase Song of Songs has particular meaning in the Hebrew language that this was written in. Let me explain what this means. You may have heard God referred to in the Bible as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That means he is the best and the highest king over all the other kings. He's the best and the highest lord over all the other lords. You may have heard of the Holy of Holies, which is the most holy place compared to all the other holy places. So this grammatical construction, the blank of blanks, is a way the Hebrew language states something in the extreme superlative. If the Hebrews were to taste my wife's pumpkin spice cake, they would call it the cake of cakes. (laughs) And when something truly amazing happens to make this the best day of your life, if you were an ancient Hebrew, you would call it the day of days. For Father's Day... Hebrew children would not be caught dead buying a mug for their father that says the world's greatest dad. No, that's lame. Hebrew mugs would say the dad of dads. So in calling this poetry the song of songs, the poet is daring to identify this book as containing what we might call the world's greatest song. This love song is the absolute best song 
to be sung. It's even better than this thing called love. I just can't handle it. This thing called love. I must get round to it. I ain't ready. Crazy little thing called love. How does this apply? Friends, handle this book with great joy. Handle this book with great joy. Sometimes I find people are afraid to study this book or maybe we're afraid to let our children read it as though it contains some dark mysteries best left to the privacy of the master bedroom. But we'll see as we work through this book that the primary audience for whom this book was intended was the virgin daughters of Jerusalem. They are the people most often addressed directly. Right in verse 5 of chapter 1, you can see is the first time. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And over and over in the book, the daughters of Jerusalem are brought in to this poetry. They are the intended audience. This book contains the wisdom of a newlywed bride emerging from her chambers with much delightful counsel and sobering counsel for the other young women among God's people to take to heart. And the resulting poetry is something meant for public consumption, for public celebration. For that reason, the poetry is not only exceedingly joyful... But compared to what we see in the world, it's also refreshingly modest. So the other preachers and I would like to make a pledge to you as we work through this book in the coming weeks. As we preach this book, we pledge to be both as passionate and as modest as the book itself is. We will need to explain the poetry and we will do so to the best of our ability. But we will do it in line with the poetry itself. That means that there will be times in this sermon series when we need to talk about not only kissing like I just did in verse 2, but also we'll need to talk about lips and tongues and breasts and bellies. But there will be plenty of other times when we will need to talk about gardens and pastures and lilies and spices. And we'll be as modest as the text is. You see, when the text gets to its most intimate and passionate moments, the action moves off screen, so to speak, and into privacy. And so our commentary on the text will follow suit. So as we work our way through this book in the weeks to come, let us remember that it is a song. It was meant to be sung publicly. It's not a policy manual. It's not an advice column. It's a song celebrating the godly intoxication of marital love. That takes me to my second point, which is that it's a song about marital love. This book is tremendously passionate about romantic love, and such passion will challenge at least two groups of people. There are those who want to pursue sexuality on their own terms, independent of God, and this will challenge them. And there are also those who might wish we could be just a little less sensual and more spiritual about it. And this book will challenge them as well. For those who want to experience sexuality on their own terms, 
This book is very clear that romantic passion is appropriate only within the context of a biblical marriage, which is that which is between one man and one woman for life before God. It's not about free love, whatever that might mean. It's not about finding self-fulfillment by any means necessary. The book's centerpiece, we'll see, is both a wedding at the end of chapter 3 and the marriage's sexual consummation in chapter 4 into the beginning of chapter 5. Sometimes it's even a little vague, hard to understand who exactly is speaking when in this song, but it's possible that in chapter 5, verse 2, we're at least hearing the voice of the poet. Maybe it's even the voice of God calling this couple on their wedding night to eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So this is, I need to make clear from the beginning, this, is, this book is a celebration of marital love. The Bible does not celebrate any of the counterfeits to this that we might wish to bring to the table. This is the message for those caught up in worldly ways of thinking about love and sexuality. But for the other group, for those who would feel more comfortable with something a little more spiritual and not quite as sensual, you know, using the senses as the love found within the Song of Songs, I want you to be encouraged that this book will teach us spiritual truths. It will teach us about God and about his son, Jesus Christ, just as much as every other book of the Bible does. And because human marriage was created by God to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his relationship with his church, this book will teach us much about the relationship between Jesus and those whom he's redeemed. But church history is filled with debates about whether this book, the Song of Songs, is about either marriage to another human or about intimacy with the Lord. The debates have raged for millennia about that. And I think it's important that we not choose between them. It can be about both. We don't have to pick one of those. The truth about God and his relationship with his people, it won't make any sense unless human marriage is a real thing to be really celebrated, even though there's a, even though there's a close connection. In other words, if I told you that joining the church is like becoming children under the fatherhood of God, and I use that metaphor, but there was, if there was no such thing in our lives as literal fathers and children, the metaphor wouldn't make any sense and it wouldn't teach you anything. So we cannot say that a relationship with Jesus is like that between a husband and a wife without also providing instruction on what God intends a husband-wife relationship to be like. And that's exactly what this book does. With all of its talk of bodies touching, viewing, smelling, and tasting. Therefore, marriage, and especially the sexual component of marriage, is not something embarrassing or dirty, which is permitted to us only as a concession to our sinful desires. 
No, marriage, along with its sexual component, is something that God celebrates and encourages. It is a large part of his answer to the existence of loneliness. So it is critical that our answer to the world's view of sexuality is a strenuous, no, no, we will not go there. But that no is not the no of a cranky tyrant who wishes to take away all your fun. It is the no of the best friend you've ever had who wants you to stop hurting yourself and help you to find out that there's another way that is just way better and more fun for you in the end than all those counterfeits. Since God invented bodies and marriage and sex, his way of navigating these things is going to be the least troublesome and the most satisfying way to navigate these things. Since I've now brought God fully into this topic, the time is right for my third point, which is that this book is a song about marital love found in the Bible. It's found in the Bible. This book is one part of the Holy Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved through the ages for the people of God. And so according to 2 Timothy 3.16, the Song of Songs is useful to us for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training us in our walk with God. This probably seems like an obvious point. Peter, you're telling me the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon is found in the Bible. Well, yeah, duh, I checked my table of contents and it's right there. What's the point? Why am I saying that? I'm telling you this because the fact that it's found in the Bible means that this book has a larger context. It was written by and for the nation of Israel back when they were their own kingdom with kings in the land. And it was written within the context of their covenant relationship, their contractual relationship with God. God had called these people out of slavery in Egypt to be his people and he their God. He gave them his law, which told them how life works best and would show the world that they were uniquely his. He gave them the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system to maintain his intimacy with them. And so the Song of Songs should not be read in a vacuum. One major error we can make with the poetry of this book is if we try to interpret the metaphors in any way we see fit. If we just try to find any way possible to get them to make sense to us, because some of them won't make sense at first. It's a very ancient way of thinking. But if we do that, if we just try to find some way to make sense, that we will end up making the book say whatever we want it to say, and then it will act like a mirror reflecting who we already are Instead of acting like a stamp, making its impression on us and shaping us the way God would have us. Here's what I mean. When you read this book and you come across something really weird, please don't throw your head back, close your eyes, and just try to imagine your way to whatever this thing is trying to say. No, instead, the best way to read this book is with the rest of your Bible in hand. 
For example, when the man compares his bride's hair to a flock of goats, which sounds rather unflattering to us, he's actually doing something very flattering. He also compares her teeth to a freshly freshly shorn and washed ewe lambs. When he does that, you're not supposed to just use your imagination to figure out what he's saying. You probably ought to be thinking of the Jewish sacrificial system and how goats and sheep are some of the primary animals that would be offered up to God as acceptable sacrifices. And so hair and teeth, like goats and sheep, would be a picture, a metaphor of their acceptability, like a fragrant offering, pleasing and desirable to this lover. Similarly, when we come across pomegranates, lilies, and cedar beams, those metaphors would all conjure up images of the temple itself in Jerusalem where God was present and cohabiting with his people. So because this book was included in the Bible, it has something to teach us about God himself and about his at times unrequited love for his people. And so we will learn a lot about our walk with God through this. It requires wisdom on our part to learn both how to live out our human sexuality in a godly way and draw closer to the Lord who has made us his own. And this need for wisdom brings me to my final point this morning which is that this book is a song about marital love found in the Bible to give us wisdom. The Song of Songs is a part of what we call the Bible's wisdom literature. It's packaged right along with Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, rounding out the Bible's teaching on wisdom by zeroing in on this particular area of marital love. So as we work through the book, it will guide our love lives in two directions. One for the unmarried and one for the married. Okay, let's talk about the wisdom of this book. First, the wisdom this book has to offer to the unmarried. As I mentioned earlier, the chief audience for this song is the virgin daughters of Jerusalem. And so in many ways, the song written for young women is the companion to the book of Proverbs, which was primarily written for young men. They're very complementary. And the, bride, the bride's chief admonition in this song to the young women is repeated three times in the book. It first occurs in chapter 2, verse 7. Here's where she lands three times. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's the chief admonition to the unmarried. Don't stir up love. Don't awaken love until it pleases, or some translations might say, until the right time. This admonition occurs in 2.7. It also comes up in 3.5 and in 8.4. You see, regarding these daughters of Jerusalem, we know what things are like, especially for young people, those of us who have been there, those of us who are experiencing it. Their their hormonal instincts 
are telling them yes, yes to love. Their suitors are all lining up and telling them yes, yes to love. But this book tells them they need first to learn how to say no. Or at least not yet. Not yet. Their greatest need, the greatest need for the unmarried is for patience before passion. Patience before passion. And that's not because the passion is dirty or sinful. The reason for patience before passion is because the truest and fullest passion will be found only at the right time. So this admonition applies to all who are unmarried, not only young adults, but also the divorced or the widowed. There are seasons of life for erotic love, and there are other seasons of life to refrain from erotic love. Just as there is a time to speak and a time to remain silent, I'm drawing on the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for war and a time for peace. All of these things are appointed for us by God. And so there's a time for the love of this book, and there's a time to refrain from the love described in this book. This book is not merely for newlyweds, but for God's people in any season of life. Now, because of this major application to the unmarried to wait for the right time, let me speak briefly to the question of whether this sermon series will be appropriate for children. I want to let you know that yes, yes, I believe it will be appropriate for children. My entire family will be here as long as we're all well. I want them to hear the truth of this book. As I mentioned earlier, the preachers pledge to be not only as passionate as the text itself is, but also as modest as the text itself is. The thing to understand is that this book was never intended to be a secret text only for the initiated after getting married. In fact, quite the opposite. This book speaks about matters such as marriage and sex in order to prepare young people for these things. The vision for romantic love found in this book is actually one of the best safeguards the unmarried will ever find to help them resist sexual immorality. And if we never give our children or our grandchildren or the unmarried something worth celebrating, they will start to think they're missing out, and that opens them up to start listening to and believing whatever the world is saying on the topic, because the world will rush right in to fill the vacuum and will take them in exactly the wrong direction. But here's the thing we learned from this book. It's that talking with young people about romance and sexuality should not take the shape of a long list of rules or infractions to avoid. No, it's a song of celebration. Talking with young people about these topics should be more like waiting in line for the, for the world's largest and fastest roller coaster. You see, you don't want to step out of line lest you, missed, <clears throat> excuse me, lest you miss out on the ride of your life. But while waiting, 
for your turn to hop on board. You're going to talk about how amazing this thing is supposed to be according to the reports of those who have written it already. That's what this book is for the unmarried. This is the line for the roller coaster. This is the admonition to the unmarried. Don't stir up love just yet. Stay in line. Wait for the right time. This is the book's application for the unmarried at any season of life. Finally, let me talk about the application, the wisdom here for the married. Because this book is not only for the unmarried, that may be the primary direct audience, but there's another thing that's repeated three times in this book. And it's, it's a, an admission on behalf of the lovers within the poem. And this admission drives their joy and it magnifies the intimacy of their relationship. The first time it's in chapter 2, verse 16, where the woman says, My beloved is mine and I am his. This is their admission. My beloved is mine and I am his. This admission is, is admitting to mutual possession of one another in the bond of marriage. This occurs three times total here in 2.16. It comes up again in chapter 6, verse 3, and in chapter 7, verse 10. The idea is that the marriage union is so exclusive and so particular that nobody else can be a part of it. And it involves such mutual possession of one another that neither lover owns themselves any longer. They both own the other. And not in a tyrannical or demanding way. They own each other in a way that produces intimacy, satisfaction, and the bringing out of the best in one another. This is true love at its finest. So if you are married... This song will regularly ask you, how is your love life? How is your love life? Because husbands and wives ought to be so united and so captivated by one another that the marriages in this church cause heads to turn. And the residents of State College will ask how to possibly get such marital delight for themselves as well. And then we can simply respond, friend, this is the good news. This marriage of ours shows you what Jesus has done for us. He is mine and I am his. We are given to one another as a gift to possess. You see, over the years and over the decades together, husbands and wives get to constantly unwrap the layers to know one another at a deeper and deeper level. And this truth of mutual possession gets us farther into the heart of God. Remember, this song is found in the Bible. It has a context in God's covenant with Israel. And the chief promise God made in covenant with his people is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This mutual possession of husbands and wives within marriage, this union of bodies and souls, is our clearest picture of God's deep, deep love for the people he has called his own. 
And this is the promise for all who sing the song of songs with their eyes full set on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your truly beloved. If you trust him, he is now yours and you are his. Regardless of your past. You may still struggle to feel like you've already messed up your opportunity to have the kind of love found within this book. You may wonder why you're still so lonely, why God is holding out on you, why marriage has seemed so elusive to you. You may struggle with sexual immorality in your life or even sexual tension or conflict in your marriage. But you need to know that your divine lover, the Lord Jesus Christ, Despite all those things, he dotes on you. You are precious and beautiful to him. He gave his life so he wouldn't have to live the rest of his without you. If you don't yet know Jesus or follow him, I am praying that this series in the Song of Solomon will show you what it means to both love and be loved so that you may return to the lover of your soul and be united to him forever. And as we follow our Lord together, may the world recognize us as his disciples. May our young people see the sort of love they want to have for themselves when they look at our marriages, so that no counterfeit would even be all that tempting to them by comparison. Let us pray for one another week by week that this may be so. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sin. That he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gift you have given to us in this song. The song of songs. Lord, I pray that you would encourage the unmarried through this series to wait for the right time and to recognize the sheer delight and celebration that awaits them as they, as they do things your way. And Lord, I pray for the married that this series will perpetually encourage and challenge them to ask, how is their love life? And we ask, Lord, that the world might see the love, the romances, the marriages in this church, and that heads would turn and people would see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.